with that being said, Kyle did one lap. He's getting ready to come back up now. Um, he's been leading us through a series called Masterclass. Um, it's been a really fun uh, journey this has been uh, going through through 1 Corinthians and kind of having Kyle lead us through this. And so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 20 through 22. And it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Man, welcome back to Master Class. If you are just joining us for the first time, in a couple moments, I'll give you a little bit of previously on about where we've been in this series and as we look at our teaching text today. But over the last couple of days, maybe even week, really, I was caught up in the, I guess you could say, standard parent, um, like when your kid has a birthday mentality, going back through old pictures, talking to Ruth about how old uh, he was or is, and seriously, I think I said it a bunch, I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that my oldest child is turning eight, you know, like that standard parent line. I out of obligation, because I thought that's what I was supposed to do, you know, because that's the standard line, or even bewilderment, you know, the, oh, oh, the time goes by so fast, where did it go, and I just would kind of say that, I was even on the golf course yesterday, and I think I said it two or three times, like, I got a birthday party to go to today, like, and this is what's happening, oh, wait, it's my son, and he's turning eight, oh, my goodness, and at one point, I was even like, this is kind of an out-of-body experience because I never talk like that. And so it was really weird that I, I was finding myself talking about my son in that way and talking about this type of experience in this way. And chances are you've seen or said the standard colloquial lines about the you know, age and you know, come out of a parent's mouth or you've been a parent and said that. Oh, they grow up so fast yourself. Our framing and understanding of time goes beyond that cultural phrase. We say to fill the air with sentiment, to personalize beliefs, and actually does affect our everyday life when we think about how we frame time. Daily decisions are shaped by what we believe to be true about the nature of this world relative to time and the reality of the next well, it's been a few years, YOLO was a popular phrase, <laughs> meaning you only live once. And while that's kind of grown out of fad or out of date, maybe that phrasing has died out, that mentality existed long before the phrase. YOLO, you know, you only live once, and it still exists today. And the reality is, if we only live once, then happiness, pleasure, and making the most out of this life will be our ultimate. You will do whatever, say whatever, and become whatever in exchange to make yourself feel good about yourself in the moment. Because we only have one life to live, so you've got to squeeze all the metaphorical juice out of it. 
And if we're not careful, when remembering moments and recognizing a timeline of events, that reflection becomes all about this life. And we actually, in fact, do begin to live like we only live once. And we're human. So this problem is a human one. And the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth to describe how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shapes all of life. Even this life and in the fact that we don't live once. Especially for followers of Jesus. And so he's been writing a corrective for how they should apply the underlying principles in their context. See, the main issue, here's that previously on, was that they wanted a Jesus branding without becoming like Jesus. Thus failing to be God's alternative to Corinth in Corinth. And we still succumb to that level of thinking today at times. We want to promote Jesus or have Jesus branding when it suits us without actually becoming like him. Ceasing to be fully human and being God's alternative to our city within our city. Thus showing people that God's best can really transform our lives and the lives of others. And so upon correspondence, Paul discovers something about how they view the resurrection. See, the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Christ, but failed to understand that they would be resurrected for believing in this truth. That when you die, those who believe in Christ will be reanimated, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And let me stress, body included. Not the colloquial, oh, like the spirit will just live on forever. Or you get wings when you die and you drift off to heaven. There are things that when we say in and around death that have a faulty understanding about what it means to die and what happens upon death and then also what true biblical resurrection is. Resurrection, what they believed in, was a physical, corporal body would be reanimated, that Jesus died, went in the grave, was resurrected, body, mind, soul, and spirit, physically and corporal. And that the reality means when we think of that word resurrection, that for us, that we won't just be some spirit that exists forever, but then when we are resurrected, our spirit, our soul, our mind will be rejoined with our body. A physical body will be reanimated, soul and spirit, when Jesus returns. Primarily after heaven, when heaven and earth fully reunite and rightly in the new heavens and new earth. And I fully realize that I might have just completely blown out some of your worldview right there. That it is very easy that when we talk about death and when we talk about the afterlife, when you go to a funeral, that to, to be persuaded and convinced that the body, that your physical body has no bearing after death. No bearing after, for the afterlife. But Paul rebukes this and actually offers a corrective and a logical argument to say, here's why this belief actually matters. So the issue is clear. 
that Paul writes. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, given that you believed in the resurrection of Christ, a physical body returned from the grave, and that when he ascended to the Father, it was a physical body, how is it that some of you are denying the future bodily resurrection of believers? And so Paul's response is in three parts. He begins in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15 by reestablishing their commonly held ground that Christ was in fact raised from the dead. And this is presented in such a way as to emphasize the objective reality of both Christ's death and bodily resurrection. But in part 2, which is our text today, verses 12 through 34, Paul takes up what for him are two contradictory positions on their part. Belief in Christ's resurrection and a denial of their own and sets out to demonstrate that logical and therefore absurd consequence of such contradictions. Paul says of all sorts, all right, I'll play your game. You want to deny that when Jesus returns that the resurrection isn't real. So what if the dead are not raised? I'll play your game. And this is what he says. And starting in verse 12 of chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up in the fact if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If, you have put, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone if christ is not raised then that would mean if if we are not raised if christ is not raised then that means christ is not raised and if christ was not raised then everything is false by believing in christ's death and resurrection we meaning both he and they have placed their trust in christ to forgive their sins But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, that means not only do we not have present forgiveness, but have lost our hope for the future as well. And if we believed in the future when there is no such future, then of all the human beings, we are to be the most pitied. Not because Christian existence is interested only in the future, but because the loss of the future means a loss of the past and present as well. See, the hope of the resurrection gives meaning to our present reality. Typically, I'm not a bullet-type preacher, but these are some things that you might want to write down, that the hope of the resurrection gives meaning to our present reality. See, Christianity's message isn't about personal happiness. It's about a Messiah crucified and resurrected. To To lessen that message... Oh, it's primarily about community, focuses on the product than the cause. To say that Christianity's usefulness is about happiness, then when the teachings of Christ ceases to make you happy, they can be discarded. But ultimately, we were made for more. 
that happiness isn't to be had by our present circumstances. Christianity's message isn't about your happiness. Christianity's message about something that Jesus, that God has done in the midst of time that shapes reality, past, present, and future. That life is more than being just a good person. That we shouldn't be followers of Jesus because it makes us more moral and upright while it may do that. But following Jesus may call us to step out of our comfort zone at times. Like even Richard stood up here and said. But in this mindset that we have been made for more, that, that, that a future shapes our present reality, that the hope of a resurrection shapes our present reality, honestly comes out of a response to the general question, how was your week? Especially here in the Northwest, I've grown accustomed to hearing when I ask that question, so tell me about your week, how was your week? You probably can guess the standard line, busy. Most people, when you ask, how was your week, how is your life, they say, busy. And they're perspective on life is shaped by their activity, by their happiness, by the usefulness or lack thereof of Christ's teaching. And so the busyness I want to critique here is not the busyness of work, but the busyness that works hard at the wrong things. It's being busy trying to please people. Busy trying to control others. Busy to do the things God told us not to do. Maybe that's sin management or manipulating the world to get our desired outcomes. And that's precisely the point. We're exhausted because we're trying to actualize a future that we have no business trying to actualize. And in our busyness, we settle for something lesser. We should be trying harder and working more and filling our schedules with more types of activity that are a response to the Spirit than just simply trying to fill our schedules with TV or parties and still trying to fill it to things that might make us happy or feel us less bad about how we spend our time. One of the reasons that we struggle so mightily with busyness is because we do not expect to struggle at all. Many Western Christians, and I'm chief among them, can easily live the tacit assumption that we should not suffer. Sure, we might get cancer someday. We might lose our job for a season. Maybe we will get one of those terrifying in the middle of the night calls. Those are dreadful losses. But day in and day out, we don't expect things to be hard. We expect others to suffer, that they might go through difficulty, but we ourselves may not suffer. And the less we expect to suffer, the more devastating suffering actually becomes. We simply don't think of our daily time spent as even possible part of our cross to bear. That maybe some of our life, some of our activity is actually to be in response to the Spirit. And maybe some of our daily activity we should think of as less busy as inconvenience, but more as full because we are there for a precise reason and remembering the future hope of the resurrection can actually provide meaning in those difficult moments. Because what if 
parenting small children isn't supposed to be easy. <laughs> what if your work week wasn't just so that you could just make it to the weekend? What if being a friend or just being a Christian is supposed to mean a lot of time-consuming, burden-bearing, gloriously busy, and wildly inefficient at times work? Maybe, just maybe, we need to feel the weight of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, believing that there it will be a day when we won't get tired, that there is purpose and present pain. That when your friend who you've been investing into just won't seem to listen, that it doesn't mean you should stop trying. That maybe when your spouse doesn't quite listen to you the way you want to be listened to, that your hope isn't in them, but it's in Jesus and the hope of the future that he can bring and he does and has promised to bring. Maybe we stop trying to quantify the success of our life by how many times we feel happy in a day or can avoid awkwardness. But instead, we recognize that the people present in front of us are there for a purpose and we are with them for a purpose. And maybe that purpose is not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but maybe it's there so that we can see them in eternity and rejoice forever with them, with God. The word for those who accept Christ's resurrection as reality, I think, is a blessed one. It includes not only the forgiveness of sins, but also a full life in the present. But it also means that glorious future, including the resurrected life like Christ. Since Christ is indeed raised from the dead, neither our faith nor our preaching nor our effort is in vain which is the point that Paul proceeds to make next. In chapter 15, verse 20, he writes this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then, he come, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet, but when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Paul takes up the reverse position. All right, you want to play the game if the dead are not raised. Since Christ was raised from the dead, that means God has set in motion two irreversibles. That the resurrection of all who are in Christ and thus the final destruction of death itself. Paul's point is that death is inevitable because of our sharing in this humanity and sinfulness of the first man, Adam. But believe sharing in the resurrection from the dead through the second man, Christ, who in his resurrection affected the reversal of the process begun in Adam is equally inevitable. There is a great 
reversal. There is a change that has been effected, initiated because of Jesus. And the resurrection does, in fact, prove Christ's identity to be validated. It proved what he said to be true, but that also Christ is the first fruits of those who are his, who will be raised at his coming. Paul proceeds on the basis of Psalm 8, which is an incredible psalm, to show how it is that God is ultimately responsible for this whole chain that began with Christ's resurrection and culminates in the destruction of death through the resurrection of believers, meaning the last enemy that we try to escape will be defeated. There's a new show on Amazon. It's actually in its second season now called Upload. And it's the whole premise is avoiding death. That you body, or not body, but, but mind, soul, spirit, the essence of who you are can be preserved without your body. And you can experience the fullness of life in the digital realm, all the sensations that come with it apart from your body. And I love tech. The, 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 the idea of innovation entices me. I think we all deserve to have, have a, a long and healthy life, to have a preserved life, to prolong life. It's innate within us to avoid suffering. That's one of the reasons why we avoid it. And the idea, the thought of being able to experience everything in maybe even a digital world, except being actually human. See, your body is essential to your humanity. Even though it's decaying, it is a part of who you are. It is a part of your identity. God did not make a mistake. Your body, the way he designed it, the way he created it, is precisely and a part of what it means to be fully human. God stepped out of heaven to incarnate, to put on flesh. The body is not an accident. Humanity is not an accident or an adverse circumstance, or the body is not something to be eliminated or overcome. God chose to put on flesh to show us what it's like to be human, to show us what it looked like to live in our everyday experience, to show us what actually creation was meant to look like. See, new creation has begun in Christ. Therefore, you can be a new person now. You can be a new person. You can change. Your character and priorities can change. Your heart can change. What you desire and how you desire to spend your time can change. And it's precisely because of the resurrection of Jesus that death, that sin, that defeat doesn't have the final say. You are not the sum total of your worst mistake or your biggest failure or your deepest shame that does not have the final say because on the other side of death there can be and there in fact is a resurrection and here's the reality if you can change others can change as well and nothing is out of the realm of God's authority Paul continues in verses 29 through 34 he says otherwise what will they do who are being baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptizing for them? 
Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm by the pride that is in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope. What good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning for some of you are ignorant about God and I say this to your shame. Paul continues, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then why do you do these types of things? Being baptized, claiming danger, if there is no resurrection. He has argued with such a death-facing life is without gain. One may as well go the way of despair. Say, who cares? What's the big deal? We're all going to die, so why does this life matter anyway? And it's a life lived without hope. To be without hope in the resurrection makes life in the present a constant round of nothing. Significantly and somewhat characteristically of this letter, Paul concludes the present argument with a strong appeal for them to stop sinning as well. And the term he actually uses is sober up. Become awake. We have such a grog and a fog in our daily grind of life. And the reality is is we're consumed by that. And what Paul is saying is when, when, when eternity breaks into the present, it will be like the clarity of going from someone who is drunk or hung over to being able to string a thought together. And to put actions, to walk in a straight line, to be able to make cognitive choices that aren't out of impulse or response, but are of choice and direction and of fulfillment and purpose. See, Jesus changes your everyday choices. And we must get off autopilot or cruise control or even stop our spiritual drafting. I'm not a fan of most forms of racing, cars, horses, drones, people. None of them do much for me. I, but I do know enough to understand what they call drafting. Drafting is when a rider or a vehicle tucks himself immediately behind another racer, often settling just inches off the rear tire. And when they do this, the lead rider has to muscle through the air resistance while the follower can enjoy the little vacuum that forms behind. The first rider has to work just a little bit harder, which allows the second to conserve energy for the final push. In other words, the second rider benefits from the strength and diligence of the first. The reality is is that we benefit from the strength and the diligence of Jesus. The problem is, is that drafting is a great strategy for racing, but drafting is a lousy strategy for Christian living for anybody other than Jesus. Think of, a, of, of maybe a mom who relies, you know, on the husband to lead this family spiritually and whatever, you know, showing up to church. And when the husband's not with them, they're not going to come. Or the dad who, who, you know, allows maybe his wife to initiate spiritual conversations with the children or or read the Bible and say, well, if we're going to pray at dinner tonight, she'll say, hey, it's time to pray. Or maybe it's the friend who cruises, you know, with the other friend and say, oh, just because I'm with them at church, like, 
I'm good. They talk spiritually. They read their Bible and they tell me what they're reading and what knowledge they're gaining. So we're all good. Or it's the church member who listens to other conversations and says, yeah, you know, you're reading, you're listening, you're learning. And so you're filling me up, but never takes the chance to get to know Jesus on a personal level. We see it often in teenagers who rely on their parents' faith without ever allowing faith to become their own. Drafting is a great strategy for racing, but it's a lousy strategy for Christian living. If you're relying on someone else's faith to save you, if you're relying on someone else's faith to help you grow stronger and endure through suffering, to have a frame of life that says that a future hope affects our present reality, then when the going gets tough, you won't get going. You will quit. You will opt out. You'll say, I'm, I'm done. I'm checking out. And ultimately, when we do that, we're allowing death and sin to have the final say. See, when the hope of the resurrection starts to impact our everyday life, we're willing to engage and embrace a little bit of the awkwardness, to ask some questions, to be a little more vulnerable and say, I'm not quite sure how Jesus' life, his teachings affect this area of my life. But the hope, the future hope in what he has done, what Jesus has done in time can affect my life so deeply that it actually produces the change that we so desperately desire. Paul says is he, 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 that appeal to stop sinning, to sober up, should serve to mend their abhorrent, abhorrent ways. In all things prior to this letter, divisions, body, food, gathering, gifting of the church, but also what we have said here, the hope of the resurrection gives meaning to our present reality. That a new creation has begun in Christ. Therefore, we can be a new person. You can be a new person. You can change. Your character and priorities can change. And if you can change, then others can change. And ultimately, where it shows up is in your everyday choices. And when you string these together, you don't have to live for this moment. Therefore, you can live in the moment. Because you'll be less consumed in your mind about your past, whether that's guilt and you have to make up for it, or shame that you have to hide some of your past mistakes and maybe who you are, or fear of rejection when people get to know you. You know, that, that you don't have to be consumed by being fearful of being rejected, that you can be honest and you can embrace that awkwardness, you can embrace that reality because Jesus has embraced you, He has overcome death. That in the moment, you can actually stop multitasking. You can put down the phone. You can be fully present with others and trust God with what's next. That you can also set boundaries. That finally, this moment, this experience is not what we need to have ultimate joy. Whether it's food, drink, money, sex, the absence of conflict or control. That we don't have to make an experience or a moment the ultimate. Because there's an ultimate, true, and lasting joy that comes. In a future hope, which means we don't have to make the most of every moment. We, can, we don't have to live for this moment, but we can live in the moment and recognize that every good gift comes from above. And it's proved that sometimes good things come to those who wait. 
Because on the other side of suffering and death came a resurrection. The band's going to begin to to come forward and we're going to prepare to respond collectively together. But what does it look like when Christians live in the moment rather than living for the moment? We begin to point to a moment in history that says death isn't the end. We'll create intentional space to connect and hear from God so that we get better at hearing the Spirit while we are on the go. And we'll be people of presence. You'll be able to slow down, not rush from here or there. You'll be able to put down the phone and not feel like you're somewhere else or have to look at someone else's pictures, but you can be present and picture in this moment. And we'll also be people who don't have to live for the weekend. We'll be able to allow our everyday experience to find joy in moments, to find joy with people, and even have hope in the midst of suffering. You have coworkers, you have friends, you have family who are hungry and desperate, desperate for that type of life. They're chasing something. Maybe even this morning, you find yourself, your soul, trying to chase after something. And I invite you to go back to the words of Paul. That Jesus was, in fact, raised. That we do have, in fact, have forgiveness for our sins. That we can be reconciled with God and we can know him personally and enjoy him forever, that he can become our delight and joy, and that living this life of faith doesn't have to be overwhelming or filled with drudgery, but we can one of delight because of the hope of the resurrection. May it break into our lives and our everyday experience. May we be people who point back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our everyday.